All right. Well, hey, everyone. We have with us uh, our, our most esteemed guest of our podcast, uh, a friend of the show. I think I can say that now, too. Um, we have with us Mark Sayers, uh, lead pastor of the Red Church, uh, host of Rebuilders, and also our only three-time guest on this podcast. So first mm-hmm. off, Mark, thanks for coming. Thanks for being with us. Uh, the three-peat hat trick. I'm excited. Yeah, yes. Good to be here. Yeah, and I always enjoy chatting. Yeah, really quick before we start, on, and there's a lot we want to get into, and I'm sure you have wisdom on. Um, I know your wife, Trudy's been through a lot the last couple of years. I don't know if our listeners know too much, but really quick, just wanted to get an update on how she's doing, how the family's doing. Yeah, so in, in May last year, um, I was actually away. I was in London speaking at the leadership conference, and um, yeah, we received news sort of out, completely out of the blue, shock, completely unexpected that yeah, Trudy had stage four cancer. And um, so she went into treatment um, last year, did a number of months of chemotherapy, some targeted drugs, uh, got to the end of 2023. And, you know, the good news with the scans were showing that, you know, the cancer had been sort of the drugs had eradicated it from her body, which is just a massive answer to prayer. Uh, we were just overwhelmed. Uh, if any of your listeners were part of the people praying from across the world, it was phenomenal. Like, you know, I keep saying to people, a lot of people, you know, I've seen a lot of the negatives of the church in the last little bit, and I totally get that. I have just seen the most beautiful image of the church globally. Um, we would almost going through time zones, get texts from people in different continents, and yeah, hugely humbled. So, you know, Trudy just had another scan. We're sort of now living from scan to scan, um, but I think it's also just given us a real hunger for God and for Him to move. You know, it's there's a sense of urgency when, you know, I used to assume, you know, that. We, we would, you know, grow together and all of that, you know. And so we walk with grace and, and Trudy walks with the grace of God. And, and it's a it's a life-changing moment. Um, but we, yeah, we, we love Jesus as much and we're more, you know, more passionate, I think, to see his kingdom uh, move forward uh, through that experience as well. Mm. So I know, you know, well, first of all, it's blessed, awesome to hear that. Um, and mm. we talked about we're always negative at the church. Um, but mm. to, to, you know, use that question, you've done Rebuilders mm. for a while, just talking about the church, I guess. Mm. And you had an interesting take, because I'm sure you get so much feedback from the podcast from a yeah. global perspective. Uh, mm. What's your current mood mm. uh, on the church mm. as a whole? Mm. I know we mainly mm. talk about the Western church, but mm. yeah, I know that podcast has been probably interesting take for you, just kind of looking at the church, mm. capital C as a whole. What's mm. your current take on the church and its direction mm. and where it's headed mm. and what the current moves are? Mm. I think we're at a, a profound inflection point. And, um, you know, I'm calling it the the vibe shift. Um, the vibe shift was a, a word that entered into the sort of popular lexicon in 2021 when a New York fashion trend forecaster called Sean Monaghan um basically wrote this piece which just went viral and what you basically were saying was that millennials had entered into lockdown thinking they were young and emerged out of lockdown finding their fashions were now out and that gen <laughs> z or as i would say gen z were ruling the roost and actually huh. defining themselves against millennials and um this is you know basically his, his argument was you know you got to get with the program and update your fashions because you're old-fashioned and you've approached middle age yeah and um you know so that's you know that's interesting from a fashion point or whatever or maybe it's not that important in the history of the world but i sense that there's a vibe shift happening and i'm having profoundly different conversations with people under 25 than i'm having with people over 25. Hmm. 
So one of my, one of my senses is that a lot of people are misreading the vibe shift um, and people are seeing the future of the church through a few lenses. Number one, through a burnt out pastor lens. And I get it. <laughs> We've been through a heck of a lot in the last year. I get it. Rebuilders, we get the emails. I feel the pain. We've yeah. walked with people. We've done that ourselves. But the future of the world and what God's doing in the world cannot be determined by exhausted pastors and the frame that they bring, number one. Number two, it cannot be read through the millennial midlife crisis. And a lot of people look in the future because a lot of millennials entered into the world when it was almost the Obama, yes, we can era. The world looked rosy, began with a lot of expectations, and the world does not look rosy now. It's really difficult. Uh, the Gen Z have actual Gen Z, I'll, I'll, I'll translate for this podcast, Gen Z have um, have begun the world with, with, begun their life with a very negative view of the world. They don't have high expectations. They're absolutely desperate. When you talk to the people who shepherded the Asbury revival, they one of the things that they sort of see as part of it was an absolute sense of desperation and hopelessness on the part of the students that there's no hope. We've got to turn to God in a big way. That was, that was driving it. So I think part of the danger is people are going to miss that. And I'm hearing people saying, this is what young people want. I'm like, no, no, that's what people in their 30s want. Under 25 hmm. is real, real different. Um, and the third thing I would say is that America, uh, the, the future of the church can't be read through American national crises. Um, I'll just give you a little thought experiment. Um, imagine if the church in America, 70% of its resources, influences, books, podcasts came from Pakistan, churches in Pakistan, seminaries in Pakistan, uh, publishing houses in Pakistan. And Pakistan went into a constitutional crisis with the removal of its leader, Imran Khan. And every book you read, you had to then wade through Pakistani evangelicals dealing with their constitutional crisis and Pakistani culture, and that was the lens. Um, that's what it's like for being an Australian. Uh, 70 80% of what I read, it's American. And again, love the resources, blessed by the resources for years, but it brings a, a national perspective. So just as like, if you were reading from Pakistan, you'd have to go, hang on, what's Pakistani stuff going on here in the crisis they're in? Yeah. I have to do the same with America. And not all the crises that are happening in America are happening in, in places in the world. There are some global stuff, and we can talk about that. We can talk about interest rates and economy and geopolitical tension. But things feel different in Singapore than they do in the United States. Um, things feel different in you know, uh, Namibia than they do in the United States. Um, and the US is heading into profound political, social, cultural crises. Um, and the danger is that we read the future of the church through that crisis. One of the things that I have as a cultural sort of commentator, whatever the heck you want to call me, whatever pretentious words you want to call me, um, is when I look at, uh, you know, dip my toes into what is the American Muslim community saying? They're saying the exact same things that evangelicals are saying about their institutions and there's polarization and all this stuff going on. It's happening at every single thinking institutional level in America is having the same crisis. Yeah, the evangelical church thinks it's just their crisis. You talk to Catholics in America, you talk, you talk to all these people. It is a multi-spectrum crisis that the United States is going through. And the danger is we read the future of evangelicalism through that lens or church or whatever, and the weeds aren't picked apart um, from that. Um, so 
My sense is that God is beginning to move in the emerging generation. There is a desperation. The conversations I'm having with under 25 are with, you know, young international students from Bangalore in India who have moved to Australia and like, how can I start prayer rooms in my campus? Uh, spoke to a young 24-year-old 20, guy, just come to faith, non-Christian background, addiction background, and just alive for Jesus. There is under 25 starting prayer meetings in a factory just near me, meeting at six o'clock in the morning. Uh, there is off the book stuff happening across the world, often after the church shuts down and they're like, can we meet in your auditorium? And so many leaders are missing this. And my sense is the, the, the vibe shift is towards zeal. That's the word I had, zeal. And, and what this up and coming generation want to see um, is actual zeal. Like, like they want to see leaders with zeal. What they don't want to see is leaders who are exhausted and burnt out and unsure of themselves and introspective. So we're actually at a moment where the church is going from like the introspective retreat is, is what I think a lot of pastors are in. But I think God's doing a new thing. And it's actually a moment of advance. And I feel in my city, and I see this in other places, this is such an incredible moment of opportunity. The idols are falling down. People are disillusioned with the idols of the world. And my fear, and I'm not fear, afraid because there's always a remnant. You know, there's a lot of leaders going to miss the boat on what's happening. And, and there is a thing happening and we need to attune to that. That's some strong medicine, but that, that's my read of what's happening at this moment. Uh, uh, on that note, um, what, how have you seen that manifest? Like that, uh, the misreading of the vibe shift, like, um, you know, when, when, people kind of misread what's happening in the church. What does that look like in, in, in ministry yeah. or how, how, yeah. how have you seen that play out in the church? Yeah. This, this move, like what you, you, I think in the intro, you know, talked about rebuilders. And one of the things we noticed is we're getting emails from people like, hi, I'm in rural Canada and we're going to church of a hundred people in a, in a town of 2000 people. But on Sunday, we had 80 people come down the front and people giving their lives to the Lord and we're experiencing God's presence. It is happening in off. It's happening off the major roads. <laughs> it's not happening at the big name mega churches. It's not even through the big name influences. And I think this is why people are meeting. Part of what used to happen, I noticed in, in denominations, often you have a, you know, a church where someone did well and they were rewarded by their denomination. They went up into the hierarchy. Nothing wrong with that. But the danger would they be then disconnected from what was actually happening, you know, on the ground. And I think that happens with the internet now. So what happens is someone has success or is able to articulate stuff and all of a sudden you get an audience, you put out more content. And Sean Monaghan, the, the originator of the vibe shift word, he also came up with the word normcore. He, he said that people missed the fashion because they were looking at what was happening online, not what was happening on the street. I think the second thing is instead of talking, if, if you if you just blow up and you're massive, you're not talking to some, you know, 22 year old who's just come in from smoking a cigarette at the front. You know, you're not in those conversations anymore. You're talking to other influencers. You're chatting to people in line. Only certain people chat to other people online. <laughs> Only a tiny percentage of people are on X or Twitter. Um, like it's not the norm. So you're missing out, I think, on, on what's actually happening on the ground. So I think I think that's one. And, and I think that the second part is, I think we think that our experience is, is normative. 
Do you know what I mean? Like we think what's happening to us is the normative thing, but it's not always. There's, there's a tremendous variety of experiences uh, happening out there to people. Uh, so to be still connected, you've still got to be connected to people. And I think actually doing ministry, and I say that even for people in the secular field, if you're not meeting with people, praying with people, connecting with people, listening to people, you can miss out on this. And also because we buy into narratives and then we leverage those narratives and those narratives can sell books and, and do different things, but they're not always relevant with what's happening now on the street. So that, I think culture is moving so fast. The narrative of 2019 is not the narrative in the world now. Maybe even the narrative of 2021 ain't the narrative that's in the world now. Uh, Mark, how would you define zeal? I'm sure there's a lot of different images that arise. And why do you think that's kind of what's needed now or what the spirit is almost like calling to attention now? Because I feel like that, you know, that might not have been what it was five years ago, but for some reason, in this particular yeah. moment, you're kind of noticing that something that's there. Like, how would you define it, and like, why now? I, I think I think I I first started thinking about it. Um, I think maybe I was talking to David Thomas from Asbury, just reflecting on that on the outpouring there. You know, he just talked about the fact that, in a sense, Gen Z comes as a corrective to sort of consumer Christianity. And I would almost see like the last phase, last 10 years, five years has been the consumer Christian thing imploding in itself a bit. You know, we went from like, I don't know, the Starbucks chain to the 10 store hipster coffee chain, but it was still an extension of consumerism. Um, and, and what he saw now was a generation who's willing to give the church a go if it was a hundred percent like, they didn't want it to just reflect the world. They, they wanted to see people actually believed it and were living out. They wanted, they wanted a visible witness, you know, to sort of use a new vegan term. And um, so, so zeal is a term that starts to die off in use. You can look at Google's Ngram viewer of when it was in use, big in the 18th century, 19th century, starts to drop off in the 20th century. And I, I wonder if actually secularism is behind that. And zeal can be misinterpreted as um, human energy. I think we've, We've mistaken a lot of zeal for hype. We've mistaken a lot of zeal for busyness. You know, we, we thought zeal is, I don't know, a Japanese salary man, you know, having a heart attack and dying at his desk. Like zeal is actually a, a, an attribute of God. All throughout the book of Isaiah, it talks about zeal. God actually stirring up his zeal. He's cloaked in zeal. And so zeal is this attribute. And there's, there's a great, um, I think his name is Nick Ilay. I read this article. He said, zeal is passion and intent that then meets determined action. We've got a heck of a lot of passion and intent, but it's actually the determined action, which then goes, I'm going to follow through on it. So the example he gives is him and his wife get pumped to run a marathon, downloading apps, buying all the gear, talking about it a lot. His wife is the one who finally runs the marathon when he doesn't. They both had equally the passion and the intent. She had the determined action. So it's actually like a forward facing. It's it's a stepping forward, you know. Like like, and I think for us, for me and Trudy, like I'll never, you know, and apologize if I get emotional. I can feel it already. You'll never forget when we were sitting in our kitchen with this sense of like, what if there's a year? What if Trudy's got a year? You know, and the idea of a long obedience in one direction didn't make much sense at that time. A long life of formation didn't make much sense at that time. There was a spiritual urgency where the reality of eternity and the, the very shortness of this mortal coil became very close. And, you know, and, and Trudy said to me, 
if 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 I have to, you know, if 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 I've got a year left, I'm willing to give my life to advance God's kingdom in the world. I didn't know what to say. Like I, I'm her husband. I, I didn't know what to say. I was speechless. Like, and you know, if this is what brings renewal. I I just want to go for it. At that moment, I saw she had zeal. Like like we got through cancer with zeal, and, and it, it sucked. It was hard. Like there were tears. It was it was tough. But there was this sense of like. We're just going to keep going. You know, there's a grip. Maybe this is a deep Australian thing. Like, like maybe, maybe there's a sense in my nation because we're just in a very tough environment. You know, we talk about the, we call it the Digger Spirit, which is this name for the, the troops that the British Army would send out, these Australian troops to get shot and they just would dig deeper. So maybe that's part of what I'm sort of, you know, connecting with here, my cultural deep, deep roots. But I think it's beyond that. I think there's this sense where there is an opportunity in the world the stories is like we are at such an axial point. It's like the 1930s now. I think I was saying it's the 1970s. We're at a 1930s point. You were born for this time. What, what are you going to do at this time? And so I see zeal as something that has to come supernaturally. It has to come supernaturally. It can be misdirected into religious zealotry 100%. You know, the enemy, once it comes, will want to misdirect it and, and, you know, into stupid stuff. But what I see is a lot of people then reacting to what they think was zeal, but it was actually busyness. Zeal is not going to burn you out. Hmm. Zeal is actually going to give you energy, but it's energy from the Lord for the task at hand, you know, and there's moments of rest, there's moments of retreat, but it's still coming back. You know, I talk a lot about, you know, Toynbee's thing of withdraw, retreat. My concern, sorry, uh, withdraw, return. You know, he said you return, you know, to bring the blessings of the wilderness. My concern is that we're just heading into a withdrawal stage as the world gets difficult. I will say though, I feel like maybe even three of us here, but a majority of people to your earlier point are coming out of COVID with that burnt out mentality and also just the truth that they're burnt out, right? And I guess to speak to leaders and pastors who are burnt out and maybe even just members and believers who feel burnt out and generally older millennials, like what would be your best advice to, you know, I, I could hear people hearing this and a lot of these guys just rolling their eyes of just like, mm. ah, like, you know, we've, we've been through this before and, and kind of like to your war analogy, there's people on the front lines. I've seen so much. They're just, just gone. So I guess for those that are burnt out, how, what's the best way to get zealous? I, I know the spirit moves in you, but is there anything else that you would recommend to leaders and to believers? There's a paradigm shift. Um, and the paradigm shift is programs burn you out. The presence doesn't burn you out. And that's the shift that's happening. This is moving to a presence mindset, mentality, reality. Uh, yeah. I mean, and look, you know, I totally get that people can hear that, you know, like I could list the stories, you know, just gone through a season of cancer. Do you know what I mean? I literally was at the point. So, I, I, you know, we went through two years of COVID in Melbourne, lockdown, had to rebuild after that. It was really tough. We went out of that. It was a bunch of crazy stuff I'm not going to go into. All the backlash, all the stuff. I think in Melbourne, we didn't have the political polarization stuff, but we did have just the people in tumult and lashing out and broken relationships. It was absolutely brutal. Um, and, you know, trying to do that in, in a city with, you know, heaps of restrictions. Uh, you know, went through all of that. I'm in London finally can sort of travel again and I, I go and speak at the leadership conference. I get to preach in the pulpit of, of Martin Lloyd Jones, uh, you know, one of my heroes. And, 
I speak at a John Stott event at the Martin Lloyd-Jones pulpit. So I was like, you know, these heroes, this is this moment. I walk out of that and I'm walking to the tube and I, I'm praying and I just feel like, God, I think this tough period's over. Phew. I'm burnt out, God. I need a rest now. I'm willing to just have a season of rest and then I'm, I'm back in the game. Just, just give me a moment here. I get to the tube and it's on the tube station that I get the call from Trudy that she's got cancer. I get on the tube and the train goes into the tunnel and I lose reception. So for 13 or 14 stations in the London underground, I'm on the other side of the world from my family. I'm just like, you are kidding me, God. You are kidding me. Like, you're for real? Like, like I'm burnt out and this this happens. So I got the scars and I can go back. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, I've faced this since I was 18. Backlash, all of this. I've seen it all. But... I just feel there's this moment to reinvent what we're doing. I think there's this moment that I think a lot of burnout, if we're really honest, yeah, there's backlash. Jesus always said there's going to be troubles. Like when did he say, uh, you know, you'll do, you have, you'll have three years of troubles and then you'll have some Sabbath. Um, and then you have, you have a sabbatical for seven years and then you'll come back and you go to a retreat and you'll meet a therapist. And that is not, it's, like, it's going to be tough. And he goes to the cross and, 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 but there's resurrection power on the other side of that. So what I'm interested in is that resurrection power. I preached for 11 weeks in the midst of cancer. I got up. I just felt the Lord saying, like, my, my board would have let me have the time off, you know. And I just felt, I think it's, I think it's East Stanley Jones who talks about in a bit in his book, the, the Christ of the East India Road, where he's exhausted and he's walking along this road and he's just exhausted. He's running around. He's a missionary. He's a statesman, just absolutely burnt out. And he just gets to the end of himself and he turns to God and he receives something different from the Lord. And I think that's possibly a moment I got. I got to, I preached for 11 weeks. I'm literally preaching and I'm thinking, God, ask me to rebuild my church in the midst of coming out of COVID. And now I've got people, people don't want to come to a church where the pastor's wife may die. That's not a fun environment. And I'm like, you're kidding me, God, you're kidding me. But I preached for 11 weeks through that. I mean, literally the first couple of weeks I'm preaching and just people are weeping, not because of what I'm saying. They're just like my sheer presence and Trudy's absence was a sign of that. But there was something in the midst that God began to do stuff. I literally was just here. I'm walking around. I'm a zombie and part of it. I'm not saying like I'm some amazing guy who's like working out at seven and, and, and doing two hours like of prayer and wandering around a lake and reflecting and journaling. There was some Bible for a lot of that, right? But you know what happened? God did some strange things. Like there was literally a prayer meeting where we just gathered and the Holy Spirit came and people sat there for three or four hours. There were people in that totally burnt out people who'd been in ministry and had almost given up their dreams who literally in those three hours were profoundly changed and are totally different people today. There is handfuls, more than handfuls, like tens, 20, 30 people who during that period where I was just barely surviving, they kept turning up that God began to change and has profoundly changed. As, a, as a, 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 someone I know who was like, I was friends with when we were children, like our parents were friends, she used to play in our backyard. I bumped to her. She's coming out of our prayer room the other week and, and she is a 100% different person. She didn't go to church for a while, um, came back, was just going through the motions. And in that period where we were going through tremendous suffering as, as a team, as a couple, God did something. So what I'm saying is the people rolling your eyes, I, I get it. I get it. 
you got to look after what you're doing 100%. I'm there. I'm not some guys that had the best seven years and I'm coming from some island paradise down here. Like, but what I'm saying is I think there's a profound shift. The, the, the answer comes, what, what are we going to do then for the next 20 years? What are we going to do? Like, like there, there is a sense that, that you might be in that place. But what I'm saying is something is happening. God is moving and you may miss it. And hear me, like, I don't want people to hear me wrong. Like, I'm not, oh, there's the, the thumbs up that comes with the new Zoom. What, what, I'm, what I'm, if those at home who can't hear, can't see this. But but what, what I'm saying is I think there is an invitation here to st- step into a deeper abiding with him out of which ministry power comes. That's what we've been missing. That's the invitation. Um, and there's an opportunity in the world. So that, that's my response. Um, I guess I have a question. Um, going back to what you said where, you know, I, I think you're completely right in saying there there seems to be a marked difference um, between what um, the 25 and unders are talking about and what they want um, versus um, the 30s and 40s. As you know, um, I mean, we're all pastors um, and part of the challenge of the church of leading a church, um, for lack of a better word, as an organization, is that a lot of times the people who financially keep the church alive are the ones in the older bracket. And um, and so anytime you tailor a ministry to the things that the next generation are craving, um, there's always pushback. Um, and, and I think pastors are always in that tension of how do you really raise up the next generation and kind of key into what God is doing, um, with the youth. Cause I, I do think that's where, like, that's where I see revival. Um, but at the same time, um, without like completely alienating, you know, those people who have been essentially, keeping the church alive um, mm. in an organizational sense, not in a spiritual mm. sense. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. There is a cohort of older people who for years have been praying for God to move. Uh, there is a, a vast amount of resources that will be released when God moves with power. <laughs> and I think this is part of the overwhelming, like, like um, uh, paradigm shift I'm, I'm trying to push here. <laughs> um, I think when we think about things organizationally, when we think in terms of career, when we think about these things and many ways replicate the commercial world, um, uh, we, we have to keep doing it in, in human strength. But we here, we, we feel the sense, there's a sense of um, students and, and and university students. Australia has a massive international student population. People coming from all over the world. We've got them turning up into our services. We've got Hindus and Muslims turning up into our services. Um, you know, we can't fund that from our church. So we're praying the Lord will provide. You know, and uh, the story's not done yet, but there's things where I think He will. Like just going out in faith. I think what I feel, like I think part of the vibe shift as well, and I'm just going to be completely honest, I've not read in the last five years, I just stopped reading a lot of books that were um, done in the last 20, 30 years. I read 
secular books about I don't know, politics and, and geopolitics and culture, but I don't read a lot of Christian books that have written the last 30 years. But when you go back and you read some of the people from the past, even, even in the 1920s and 30s, you know, how they were facing what was going on there, there's something there that is missing today. Mm-hmm. There is this um, sense of deep devotion. There's not a sense for position and power and platform in the same way. There's a sense for the presence of God and a determination. So that's what I'm going to get at. I think if people think that what they're hearing, the way that I'm talking today, and I think I've heard this before, I don't think you have. I don't think we've seen this in, in our regeneration. Now, there might be some people who, who heard about this, saw this as kids who are now 60, 70 in your churches. And I just reckon that there could be some people in those spaces who it triggers a memory. My wife's had this, and she'll probably get frustrated because I think she, this is this is a thing she's had. It's brewing, so she's working on it. But she just had a sense. It's almost like Mary and Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. You know, Elizabeth's not young. She, she's old. Mary's this teenager. Yet God is birthing something in the new. And I see some of the some of the people stewarding what happened to Asbury are actually older. Like they're not the, the super. Like, that sounds like I'm making not being nice. They're not. They're not the cool hip pastor that you're expecting. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and there's something here of like, like faithful boomers and older gen, gen Xers who are now, who have, who have stayed in when everyone, all their, a lot of their friends dropped out, who are now faithfully stewing something. And what if God's birthing something in Gen Z and the older people who've hung in this long? And I think that invitation there is for millennials. Do not hear this as any, like, he's, you know, I don't, we say in Australia, bagging out as criticizing millennials. I'm not at all. I'm saying there's an invitation here to step into and and my heart like i'm speaking with passion because my heart is that i don't want people to miss it you know um i mean i mean what what happens i mean just i'll just give you you got an election coming up how, how, how is anyone going to be happy after this election regardless of what happens <laughs> yeah just putting my political science hat on like this this like what what's going to happen unless some magical candidate who's no one thought of yet who's like the ultimate consensus builder is going to like be released from Mount Rushmore inside. They've been growing them, you know, like it's in DNA or something. Um, there's going to be significant, there's going to be more disappointment in your country of the ways of the world. That is a spiritual opportunity because people are becoming more and more profoundly disappointed. The weirdest thing is something, something happened in Australia. Australia's institutions have been smashed as well, right? So, we love Qantas, our national air carrier. It went from the biggest brand to one of the lowest brands. Our top supermarket chain has just been exposed. The the CEO of that had a, had an interview on TV and they walked off and they resigned because they were price gouging. Everything, politics, sport, you name it. This research comes out and we were utterly blown away. You know what institution went up? The church. This is after all the things that happened with Hillsong. We've had Royal Commission into sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Like, well, what on earth is happening? And, the, and the, the response seems to be everything else is falling down. Australians is going to give the church a go. So we're seeing unchurched people on Sunday night. It's like unchurched people rock up. Can you pray for me? That point is coming for the US, and I want people to be attentive to it is, is a big part of what I'm saying here. I know I'm passionate today. It's, it's, I've had two coffees. It's early morning here. You, you know, one thing you said that was interesting is how it almost sounds like zeal and the correctiveness that Gen Z is bringing about. It's not from the past just two to three years, but the past like 30 years almost. And even when you yes. mentioned like it's hard to read Christian books from the past 30 years, 
because that almost reminds me like watching certain movies with from the 90s and they use a certain cgi and it's like oh you could just see that time period of when this came from i do resonate with the mm -hmm. idea that the past 30 years the christian books there's something about that period of time that feels a little bit off or and especially if you're drawing from that well still to be the formative foundation of how you do ministry today how would you mm -hmm. like describe that period and like how do we like get here to now where mm -hmm. like pretty much in other words like what are we correcting from that 30 years that you could observe? Well, what happened 30 years ago? It's the first question. And 30 years ago, the world entered into a delirium. And that delirium came with the fall of communism. And the delirium was that we were just going to slide. Like the great, the great battles over history and the fact that we were inches from nuclear war and uh, the idea of so many things got replaced by we were sliding towards utopia and you didn't even have to try that we're going to, well, it's going to, everyone's going to become a liberal democracy. We can export freedom to Iraq and the Iraqis will greet people with flowers that the internet will bring everyone together and inequality and, and injustice will just fall through cool people doing cool things and giving each other high fives. Uh, we had the whole realm of, of printed money, like, like, like a, you know, I don't want to get too techie here, but you had an overwhelming economic vision of the world, which has been dominant of neoliberalism, that we just had to connect individuals to what they wanted. We could deconstruct all the institutions. It was the right wing achieving what the left wing wanted to do in the 60s. And that world is completely falling apart around us. You know, you, I read all the people who were saying this on the left and right. The, the economic model of the world and the geopolitical model of the world, the model of how we built our states and institutions is profoundly falling down. And you look at the church, what happened in that time? This was a highly corporatized time in history, and the church mirrored that. Our churches ended up looking like neoliberal corporations. Our ability to, to do leadership looked like organizational management from Harvard. You know, and, and, and even HR comes in. What's HR? HR's therapy. Let's have these sessions. They still talk about it. All this stuff, group consensus. Like we thoroughly became connected to that project in the world. And it was a lovely, warm, post-political future. It's going to be great. I wanted to believe it. And it is falling down. So I think there's a link. I mean, I need to do more work on that. There's something I'm thinking about at the moment. But I think that period is over. Interest rates are back. Geopolitical conflict's back. Uh, polarization is the norm in history. Mm. Uh, that we're in a weird post-political time where Seinfeld, but it's a show about nothing. Everything was about nothing. Uh, you know, so you could just argue, you know, about, I don't know, the guitar riff in a Nirvana song or what the way that's Converse sneakers meant. I was literally, I was, I was there when literally Christian cultural commentators were writing articles about, you know, like stuff like that, you know, but now meaning is back. Uh, conflict is back. This is the norm. And I think that the church is returning to something because we're in a fantasy land for 30 or so years. I mean, that's fascinating because I feel like when we see the church now, people would say the church is like falling, but it almost sounds like what you're saying is like, no, like the church is actually returning potentially to what it was. And I guess a follow-up question is what is that returning to? Like, how would you describe what the church is returning into? I think, I think if you think about what the, what the model of church looked like 30 years ago, uh, or even a bit before that, you know, a lot of it was your suburban church of 200, 300 people doing life, doing community, seeking God together. There wasn't as many celebrities as Billy Graham was flying around getting his United Million Air Points or whatever is the first person to get it. God bless him. And, and, but it wasn't like 
you were leveling everything up and leveraging everything. It was this sense of people connected to where they were, God moving in small ways. You didn't always hear about it. And and that's what I'm seeing. Like that's the emails rebuilders are getting. Hey, you probably don't know me. I'm in rural New Zealand. I'm in a small town in in, you know, wherever, middle America, and stuff's happening here. Students are coming alive. And I think we're back at that, but we just don't know how to read it because the internet, so the other thing happens is the internet becomes a kind of brain through which we process everything. So two people have a spat on internet. I, I was going to make this, uh, make an admission straight. I, I, I go onto Twitter and I see these arguments about, I don't know, Southern Baptists and denominations that I don't even know what they are. I'm confused, but I'm not stupid. And there's just like these interesting battles that are so irrelevant to me. And I'm, I'm not dissing them or saying it's not relevant to the people there. And then all these people jumping on and getting into it. I'm just like, like it just is irrelevant to 99% of the world. But what's relevant is, hey, I'm a guy and I'm sitting in my bedroom going, there must be more to life than just an Ikea, you know, designed home, you know, and, and this world is rubbish and I need hope. It almost sounds like the churches that are, you know, in the world secular sense of like, they didn't make it. The 100, 200 size, small to medium sized church that for a long time I've been a part of. And we look to these bigger churches, especially on the internet of like, man, if only we had this or that. But it almost sounds like, no, 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 no. The future of the church is almost within that group. And we're not trying to like, you know, bag on any large churches or anything like that. But the, the potential of what you see in these smaller churches is just exponentially wider what the spirit can do compared to these more larger structured churches that are hard to change. Is that, is that what I'm kind of getting to? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we have to change our paradigm and what I'm less interested now in is the shape of church as I am is what is the presence of God doing? You know, like what people in a Baptist church, you know, two hours from here, like, Oh, we started a prayer room and God's doing this, you know, this charismatic, Catholics up the road who will tell us the story. This is happening there. Like there is stuff happening all over the place. Some of them are big churches, you know. Like I, I, I was in when I was in Maine, in Oxford, in in St Aldoats, which is a large Anglican church there, filled with Oxford students from around the world, many of whom are coming to faith. So I'm more interested. Where is the spirit moving? <laughs> Not what is the shape and hope that somehow that all configurates and the spirit comes there. Where is the spirit moving in the world? And so. Yeah, my sense is that it's going to be in unexpected places. It's going to be different sizes, different shapes. I'm just far less interested in that now. I still have to work out what does Red Church look like. I'm doing that here, responding to stuff. Um, but, yeah, I, I think we need to be more attuned to what is God doing than what are we doing. I'm curious. I mean, you just mentioned that you're thinking through what does Red Church look like. I remember the last time you were on, um, you talked about how kind of your mem- how, how you were rethinking membership you know, disciples at Red, um, and and made us all want to change all of our membership structures as well. Mm-hmm. Like, what are um, anything in terms like practical things that you've been trying to implement at Red in response to what you perceive to be this this vibe shift? I'm curious. Yeah, I mean, one thing we did last year, which was profoundly transformative, is we just literally opened up on in the afternoon. A space and we just called it the renewal sessions we didn't know what it was and it was literally just come and pray come and worship together with no agenda and and i think i hinted at it earlier you know we met about three times like what is this a bit awkward you know it was a filled room zero hype 
just literally someone with a keyboard or a guitar. Um, and and the third one, something profound happened. We went to end it and we couldn't. And it wasn't like, hear me, like this is this is not some wild Pentecostal moment where, you know, like we're just in the, the 17th verse of a song. This was like we're sort of awkwardly holding microphones, like how do we how do we end this? And the generations pastor comes up and grabs the mic and goes, I think the presence of God is here. And we're like, what on earth do we do now? I sit down, like literally just sit against the wall, like I don't know what to do. And everyone sits there and I'm watching people pray for people, super quiet, super gentle, profoundly transformative moment. That's what we're doing, stuff like that. Like this Sunday, I literally just at the at the end of the service just felt like if you want zeal, you need to uh, – pray for it you know we're going to take communion together and then after communion if, if you feel like you just want to come forward i'm thinking i'm gonna get 10 people 80 percent of the congregations down the front praying for each other and and god's moving and we go over time like i, I i'm at the stage where it's like i'm just i i got to the where i'm at <laughs> is we've got to get to this point of there's always needs to be order. And again, too, people could misrepresent or misunderstand what I'm talking about. There's just this sense of creating space for God to move, getting out of the way and creating spaces where that can happen. And people are responding. People want this. People desperately want this. I think what I've noticed is in Australia, the ones who maybe at my church after everything we've gone through, the ones who stayed around are the ones who want to go deep. So almost like that was the theoretical thing you had last time about disciples are read. All the stuff we've gone through, and we've gone through a lot of stuff, is what we're seeing is that in a practical lived faith thing that mm. we're here, we want to go deep. And, and um, yeah, so that, that's how we're thinking about things. We we are thinking about students, and, and I just sense there's a huge opportunity with Gen Z. We're just pressing into that. Having a prayer room at the centre of our church has been utterly transformative. Um, so instead of like another meeting, we, you know, we, we do pastoral meetings, we do all that stuff. But a question now, have you, have you spent time in the prayer room? People coming and going into the prayer room and God doing stuff as they pray and build that rhythm that we've tried to do in 10 years of pastoral work and never gotten to with people. It's God doing it, you know. Uh, and we still have groups, we still got all the stuff, but it's just bringing that center of a thing of like, what if the next thing, is God. Do you feel like in the past we didn't make space for that as a church? Or do you feel like this hunger is new? Like what's kind of causing this? Is it like were we too busy planning as a church and making things super clean? Because it sounds like the type of church you're almost describing to create these spaces. It sounds like messy and it sounds almost like yeah. beyond like the, the organizational tidiness of how maybe churches tend to do things. But do you feel like there was always that hunger or do you feel like as a church, we just weren't creating those spaces to even cultivate that hunger? Yeah. So it's interesting that we had, we had Carrie Newhoffer who just visited us just in the congregation on Sunday. And, and, you know, he was experienced what happened in the service in that particular service. And, you know, just chatting afterwards. And he said, you know, when, you, when you're so programmatized, you don't have space for that kind of thing to happen. And, you know, I think it's like, again, too, we're still organized, you know, like we're not a bunch of hippies running around here. Like what time does church start? Like, but I think you're right. I think there's part of it, what you've got out there. I think that we're so pro programmatized, you know, how, like honest question, how much of our stuff is coming from contending prayer of what do you want us to do in this season, God? You know, like, is that the center of our planning? How much of it is planning and how much of it is prayer? 
And when I read again, I talked about that older period. When you read the older period of, you know, people deciding where they were going to go, where Wesley was going to preach, you know, like whatever, so much of it came out of prayer. There wasn't as much strategic planning there. You know, I'm yet to find the great awakening or revival anywhere in the world that was strategically planned. (laughs) And so I think that's part of it. I do think there's a growing hunger. I think there's just something, and I still don't understand, I 100% believe that, Revivals, outpourings, quickenings, whatever the heck you want to use language, are sovereign works of God. But interesting, like, when when the disciples see Jesus, I think it's in John's gospel, and he's clearing out the temple, as it, I think it's John's 2, that they remember the verse from Psalm 69, which is, zeal for my house, zeal for, for God's house will consume him. And at that point, they look at Jesus and go, there is a man consumed for zeal for God's house. Now, what's he doing? What What's zeal there? It's, it's in the house. House is the dwelling place of God. I can't manufacture a move of God. And I've seen people do that. You know, there are certain streams of the church where they're just trying to wheel it on. You can't wheel it on. It comes unexpectedly. The Asbury thing, you know, I talk about it and I'm encouraged by it because it literally happened in in a student chapel. You know, I mean, people go to them. They go to them on rote. You know what I mean? Like Zach who preached the sermon admits it was not even the best sermon, something happened, you know, something happened of God. Um, so, you know, my, my sense is that there is this sense we can't will it on, but we what we can is have zeal for the dwelling place. Do we want to host God at the center of everything that we do? Like, like what if we're burnt out because we're doing everything but the most simple things? I used to play soccer, I used to have a, you know, very... Um, yeah, passionate Scottish coach, you know, and when you get into trouble, he just would say, keep it simple, just pass, keep it simple when you're in trouble. What if it's just simple? What if it's just hosting God? Like what if it's, we're getting together, two of the churches near here this Monday, Thursday, we're just going to get together and just pray. We've got a very loose agenda. Like that's what I feel the new thing is. Like we've, well, these churches not worked for, together for that long time. You know, we're getting churches here in Australia, post COVID, like have not spoken. Uh, churches have gone through stuff and, and had, leaders that have fallen all of a sudden are humble going let's talk let's pray what's god doing in your church it's actually refreshing i'm not if that doesn't tie me do you know what i mean um so what if it's actually easier than we realize i think coming out of covid i'm only speaking for myself but it, it felt this urge of we got to do everything to get these people back but it's almost calming to hear that maybe it's not busyness but it's making space for god which is messy at times and Again, you said, like, we're not trying to create these just chaotic rooms, but just leaving space. Now, with that, I, um, this is a huge shift. But before you leave, um, a lot of also things have happened in the world uh, as, uh, you know, another conflict emerged. And especially for Gen Z, as you mentioned, um, it's a huge issue for them. And you, you kind of see one thing about Gen Z, and we've always mentioned this, is that they're radically aware of what's going on in the world and that it affects yeah. all of what they see, especially their faith. So I guess, especially with Israel and Palestine and the Gaza Strip, um, at least in America, uh, it, it has felt huge and, and just the burden of it, um, people taking very strong opinions either side uh, of the conflict. And you know, I, I know you've done uh, a multitude of uh, episodes on rebuilders on that, but I guess, you know, I, I know it's been a little bit, but as, you know, it's funny too, because as these conflicts kind of emerge and go on for time, the zeal for it also campaigns and you forget that it's actually happening that's a, you russia ukraine war still happening too so i guess for you with israel palestine 
Um, yeah, mm. I guess any any of your thoughts for the church as you see that conflict emerge um, mm. here and and for American foster and just for the church in general. Mm. Well, it's, it's interesting in, in Israel Palestine is always a third rail issue, and one of the fascinating things I find is maybe two three months before you know Hamas's incursion um, on October the seventh, you had the forces of Azerbaijan go into the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh and uh, basically remove the entire population in what was an ethnic cleansing, really. Um, at the moment, it could look like there could be a significant war in Armenia and Azerbaijan again, and no one cares. We have a brutal war in Sudan, uh, you know, tens of thousands killed. The Russians are there. There's even uh, reports the Ukrainians are there fighting the Russians in Sudan. Uh, very little interest. Uh, you know, brewing war in possibly what's known as Somalia land, the breakaway, terrible war in, in Burma at the moment. Very little interest. People are not going onto the streets of these things. Why is a fascinating question. Uh, Israel-Palestine is an intensely important thing because it connects with three things, really. One is um, you have a large Muslim diaspora and Palestinian diaspora around the world. I think the largest Palestinian diaspora outside of the Middle East is in Chile, um, uh, in South America. So this touches all over the world. So that connects with that um, uh, group of people. You've also got a large Jewish diaspora of people, Jewish people all over the world, and this connects to their sense of identity. So all of a sudden it goes into two forms of, of identity politics and a long history. Uh, the battle is over who is Indigenous, around this and so a lot of the ways that the west has spoken about these things and what is on vogue at the moment in terms of particularly social justice circles around settler colonialism and so on um and those words get written yet there's a dispute over who is it's not a clear-cut thing as opposed to like say in the united states and and with first nations people in north america or say in australia um so that just keeps it going there's a long history of combat um in those places and, and political upheaval Palestine also, in sort of the particularly the liberation movements that started in the 1960s and 1970s, is sort of the, the left moved into a new phase of what was called the new left. Um, you know, Palestine became sort of an emblematic, almost a, uh, there was the Che Guevara T-shirt that a lot of people wore over the Cuban struggle. And some might say Palestine was like that as well. So it's this, it's almost this meme in the strongest sense of the word. I don't mean like an internet meme, but a meme that uh, galvanizes people and, you know, is put into place. So in Australia at the moment, there's a, a big argument at the Sydney Writers' Festival uh, where the Indigenous community is split down the middle where you've got Indigenous people saying, what we're doing has got nothing to do with what's happening in Palestine. Some of the more hard left of the Indigenous community saying, no, Palestine and the struggle of Australian Aboriginals is exactly the same. So it, it links into all of these different hot-button subjects um, and so, you know, I'm, I, I also find that the internet wants you to land on a side. Do you know what I mean? Um, and, uh, you know, wants to put this in a clear binary, you know, um, and who's the good guys who the bad guys. And, and I think that, you know, in situations like this, where you have this incursion, which was horrendous, and then you've got this, 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 you know, pushback into Gaza, which has got so many civilian casualties, you know, war is how. And, and these geopolitical issues, the smartest people in history, you know, all the peace accords, read the history, the smartest people in history trying to work this stuff out for hundreds of years have not worked it out. 
And I think there's going to be this pressure for us to work us out and put it in a clear box. Um, I also am, am you know, I, I do find it fascinating that we are far more interested in this than some of those other conflicts where far more people have died. The far greater numbers of people who died in the Syrian conflict, but people don't understand the Syrian conflict because are you on the side of Assad? Are you on the side of the various different factions? So these are examples of an increasing complexifying world which there are no easy answers, which conflict is normative. Geopolitical struggle is going to get more and more intense, uh, where the unipolar moment of the American military order creating a sort of globalised world is, is in retreat. Uh, so these things that have come across the church, but we, get, we can't ignore some and focus on others. We need to have an overarching biblical worldview to how to deal with all of this in its totality. Uh, what do people think about West Papua? in America and Christians being killed by the Indonesian military and most popular. No one cares. Um, so we've got to actually have a global view. I shouldn't say no one cares. That was facetious, but you know, it doesn't get the, doesn't get the coverage in the same way. So, you know, I think we need to have an overarching view of how do we deal with a very broken world where war is normative, but how do we respond to that as the church? And that's not in a soundbite that I can put out in the podcast. I remember when Russia invaded Ukraine and we spoke about that, you kind of had a little bit of you know, red flags or warning bells, like this could end up being pretty bad um, or it could go, you know, who knows what direction this is going to go. I guess after a year has passed since that, do you have any updated thoughts on your, I guess, feel of like how the world's going and um, yeah. even like these surprises or, or is this going as the way you thought it would? Um. It's, it's going quicker than I thought it would, to be honest. Um, so you, you have um, Ukraine. It's, it's very possible Russia could win the war now. Um, at first, I think there was a lot of, you know, Slava Ukraine and, you know, uh, and totally understandably, you know, this invasion and, and the sense that the West now is it, it, it just Russia has the numbers game. It's becoming a grinding industrial war, the times of which we thought, disappeared and the questions i have what if russia takes all of ukraine and i think some of the funding basically ukraine has been able to stay in the war because of u.s funding with political change in the u.s and stuff already happening in congress that may be more and more difficult and russia is just you know historically militarily has been into long grinding wars and that's what's happening they call it the big grinder what happens if russia then is on the border of hungary poland you know like in the west what will mean poland now has close to the biggest army in Europe. Um, it's spending almost, it's going to spend almost 4% of its, of, its, of its national budget on defence. Uh, this war still has the potential to spill out into the rest of Europe. The arms that the world has in stockpile, particularly US military, British military, are being expended in, in, in Ukraine over the last year at an incredible rate. The Russians, surprising everyone through getting North Korean weaponry, uh, have kept that going, and they've turned to an industrial, a military industrial economy, wartime economy, which Western Europe hasn't, nor has America. And then a second front opens up. So America is also basically propping up Israel through sending arms, and, and those stockpiles are going down. Uh, the Houthis and what they're doing in the Red Sea is of huge importance. And basically the global sea lanes that would go through the, the Suez Canal are now being diverted around. That's going to have an inflationary effect, which hasn't moved through the system yet. Um, when that begins to move through inflation, I think we'll be back. I could be wrong about that, but I think it will be back. And you begin to see an economic impact, sadly, often with the people who can't afford that 
And I think some of the sense in America that the economy is a little bit better, I think that will start to get evaporated by as this works through the system, but particularly in Europe. Europe is going to the hard right. You know, people talking about America, it's Christian nationalists and so on. But some of the figures that are coming to power, the Dutch election, uh, you know, you're seeing just figures. I think more and more of that will come as migration becomes a bigger issue and Europe heads into economic problems. Um, and so you've got literally now sort of two theatres of war, uh, but then also the Americas now, you have a real theatre of war possibility in Venezuela and Guyana, um, which the US would have to protect and the British, and they're already overstretched. But then there's the million-dollar red-hot button, which is Taiwan. And, um, you know, if something happens in Taiwan, you've got an already overstretched U.S., um, highly committed, running out of, of vital stuff. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the capabilities of the Western military we're seeing is not, not potentially there. So these are all, at the end of the day, the world is often about these hard reality material things of the Suez Canal, you know, the straits through Asia, the in-between Taiwan and China, where so much of global trade goes. Uh, so I feel that the world is is at a real tension point. And that stuff changes, everything changes. <laughs> what we don't realise is, and that's what I feel like, a lot of this stuff we're talking about, this is also partially my passion in the first segment of this, like introspection will rapidly disappear if, if Taiwan is taken <laughs> because it will upend the global economy in profound ways. And, you know, I think that the Iranian, I mean, really what, what's happening in Israel, it's, it's gone beyond now Israel and, and Palestine. You now got various Iranian proxies engaging with the US. And what's fascinating is, I mean, hundreds of attacks, US service men and women dying. Um, and uh, Israel, uh, US is almost being sort of pushed out of the Middle East. And so without the US there, it's going to become, you know, so the, you, you could see Israel, Iran, you can see US versus Iran happening. You could see Saudi versus Iran, uh, multiple hotspots. That's where it's starting to feel like probably if I spoke to you last time, I'd say we're in 1970. I think we're in the 1930s now. Um, and uh, yeah, so I pray a lot for the world. Uh, but that's why I'm sort of saying, guys, we've got to get our eye on the ball here. And <laughs> what if now is the preparation time for what's to come? Mm. And I don't want to be a doomer here. Um, I still have hope, hope for peace in the Middle East, hope for all these things. I pray for it. But we've also got to prepare that God could be preparing us for the next 10 years and what happens there. Hmm. I mean, I have two questions. One is, how do you have the time to acquire all of this information? I mean, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm in awe of that, that you are pastoring a church while somehow um retaining all this information about the world that's my first question that's actually a legitimate question um and my second question is how do you approach discipling your people through some of these things um on one hand i think um i, I would say all of our desire would be for all of our people to be able to broaden our perspective on not only the the hot button issues, but even just globally, all the issues going on. But then at the same time, so many of our congregants come with extremely emotional, visceral questions and responses to specific issues. And so how do you pastor them and disciple them well through those issues as well? So yeah, however you want to answer those questions. 
Look, I, I think the first the first response is, you know, part of it is, um, you know, I, I see this as part of why God created me. And, um, you know, I just always had an interest in the world and I just love doing this. This is not tiring for me. Um, you know, I, I follow football, soccer, and I follow world events. And, um, they're the two things I do, you know, so I'll walk on a, you know, I'll, I'll walk on it and listen to podcasts of what's happening in Middle East, the news and follow this stuff and, um, read and just, you know, it, it's something I'm fascinated in. And then I used to do it and I didn't share it, you know, and then one day I just done rebuilders and stuff, started dropping different things. People are, oh, this is fascinating. Please tell us more. And continue to sort of educate. Now, you know, like I think I can sort of hyper focus in on those things and learn. Just yeah, so I think that that's it. And often sometimes people go, "How do I be like you, Mark? Don't be like me." <laughs> um, you know, listen to I don't know the BBC World Service. That's fine. You know, educate yourself, but you don't have to do it all. Um, I think the second thing too is um, I think there's two things. I think being a prayerful church changes things from being an announcement church or a how do I okay what's the, what's the opposite word when Israel Palestine happened we prayed you know in the service um, I think often churches and perhaps this has more been in the states I feel like they've got to make statements and, and address things and that's part of the highly reactive social media space um, what if you're just without a gender yeah we're gathering let's just pray for peace in these places you know and just people praying it, it changes the dynamic um, so I think prayerful churches where you pray about what's happening in the world is, is a really key thing. Um, Australia has a different culture. Um, you know, I talked about the Sydney Rise Festival. You see the Gaza um, um, thing in certain spaces. You get a certain neighbourhoods. It's, it's really present in some of our more you know Muslim uh, majority neighbourhoods. We've got a significant Jewish population as well. And then some of more sort of, I don't know how to describe it. Let's call it, just say hipsterish neighborhoods. It's a big thing. But then in 80, 90% of neighborhoods, it's not, you know? Mm. Um, uh, so in Australia, there, there is a little bit of thing that you don't talk about politics too passionately in the public space. Um, that's still that's still probably different for us from the US. So that that is just a contextual, contextual thing. The issues are still there. Um, but I think also don't feel like you have to answer everything. Like, as I said, like, honestly, I do not know the answer to the Middle East crisis. Like, I read thick books and I don't understand the answer. Like, like the best people in the world, you know, like presidents and UN officials struggle to work out an answer to this. Don't feel you've got to come up with an answer to this. Maybe we just need to be humble and go, I've got no idea, God. It's a mess. There. I, think the average, I think also the sort of normie person, this is my sense. I don't know about the US. I think the normie person out there would probably go, if you just, if I could grab three people on the street out here and said, what do you think about the Israel Gaza? They're like, oh man, that attack was terrible. And I don't know, maybe Israel's gone a bit far and it's bombing. I don't know. It's just, just a mess. What do we do about it? That's probably the realest response. Yeah, no idea, mate. Like, it, it's, let's just pray. Let's be humble. Let's just pray. So I almost feel like that's the response sometimes. And, and I think part of the problem is like, some of the framing around certain things we just bring to the next thing. So what I mean by that is, you know, it could be an issue of national tragedy or, or national, just absolutely clear injustice that, you know, Bonhoeffer, when, when the Nazis come to power, you know, this clear, you got to say something on this and, and that's this moment. And there's a contextual reality. Yes. The church needs to make a stand there. Does the church need to make a stand on then, you know, irrigation in, you know, 
Guadalajara. You know, what, what's our policy on, you know, what farmers should do in, yeah. in Guadalajara on irrigation? You better have a, you know, like, like, I mean, I don't even know if it, what it, I don't know much about Guadalajara, but, you know, th- there's that sense that, you know, these are hugely complex issues. And what I've learned reading the books and reading stuff, it's contested. The experts don't know. And even the people on one side, there's massive content. You know, the, the new reality I said is we're from polarization to almost mini polarizations on the left now. The left is now just fighting with the left is the reality and the right's fighting with the right. Um, and they'll come together for a general election in the US. Um, so don't feel like you've got to come, release yourself of the burden of having to have all the answers because the smartest people in the world don't have all the answers to this stuff. Just be humble, seek God. If Mark doesn't have the answers, then none of our announcements <laughs> I got no idea. will have the answers. Yeah. No, that, that's helpful. Um, but lastly, I, I was hoping to do this. I, I have one question ready, but I don't know if Jason told me. If, if we could all ask like one random question, just get like a one minute response from you. Um, we'd we'll love that. So uh, Jason, Tom, think away. But I'm in Silicon Valley. Um, very close to you know all the tech and AI especially, um, and I think uh, people. I could be wrong, but I don't think people under are underestimating the impact of AI in the next ten years. Um, Sam Sam Altman, who's kind of the father of AI, he asked for seven trillion dollars, which is like five percent of the global GDP, which means he has something cooking that's going to change the world uh, drastically. So I guess for you, from from what you've read and just your own thoughts. Um, and like a one minute, I know that you can't fit everything, but just a quick response. Um, what, what are your thoughts on just AI and the church moving forward? Because I'm, I'm very interested and uh, very And you scared. only have one minute to answer. Yeah, one just, minute. Oh, man. One minute. There you go, Mark. Or something uh, I did a panel in London on AI. Um, uh, really quickly. So our society has become a platform society. People have not realized that. Digital platforms have changed. What AI is, is nuclear weapons for digital platforms to disrupt society. It's going to have a profound thing. I, I'm slightly skeptical, like seven trillion. How do you find that at this time? Slightly skeptical that they can do that. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I think hugely disruptive. I'm very concerned about some elements of it. I'm not completely doomer on it, but I think there's some genuine concerns um, around it. And I think there is an ideology behind a lot of the people who are pushing AI and there is a, ideology from silicon valley um that i'll stop now and won't extrapolate on because it's a minute and and and, and ai is the manifest incarnation mm. or decarnation whatever of that ideology i guess my random question is you know, so carry new off he was at your church and he recently had an interview with the mutual friend john mark comer and they were talking about the state of the church and one thing that i took from that interview that they were saying that that was interesting was they're almost saying the way you do church today, and by church meaning like the Sunday experience where you come, you worship, you hear a sermon for like 30, 40 minutes, it almost sounds like in this information age that they're almost like pondering the idea, does it work? Like can people who have access to like the greatest preachers on podcasts from the past and the present, can you really form them in the Sundays? Or is there something more that the church needs to do or even something different that the church needs to do? I don't think they really had a proposal or an answer, but they did have an observation, like the way church is happening now, it's it's not gonna be as effective today as it was like, again, even like 20 years ago. And so I guess, do you think, and I guess by church, meaning particularly the Sunday gatherings, do you feel like something needs to look different or do you have any thoughts about that? 
and again in one minute. <laughs> I think they're right if you discount encounter with the presence of God. Hmm. Hmm. I'm honestly trying to get my head around. Me, me and my board chair, we're having this conversation. What we're trying to get our head around is we have seen people encounter the Holy Spirit, encounter the presence of God in the stuff like the stuff we've been bumbling through in the last six months. And the board of my chair said he saw seven years of growth in someone in minutes. And he's, he's the president of the board, what you would call president of a seminary. Hmm. I think what's missing from that is you don't have to be the best preacher if you've got the presence of God. And I think there's, there's a mistake in this if, if we're not too careful that it's all about Again, it's, it's going back to what I said about the economy, just the best and the best and the best and the best. But what if it's the presence of God and there's some person who's just mumbling and it's not a great sermon, but and it's in a dingy hall somewhere, but the presence of God is moving through them. That's what changes lives. Uh, this Sunday, I saw it. Carrie experienced something. Like, like, um, and, and, you know, I, I think what, what Carrie was saying to me, and I, I don't want to put words in you know, Carrie's mouth or, you know, but, you know, he's saying he's, I think his word is moving from a, manipulating to evoke, creating space. I mean, I literally got up the end of service. I'm like, well, I'm like, what do I do here? Like, okay, it's carnage. We've got 80% of the people at the front of the church. We have a prayer team. I'm like, I literally said, we're going to prayer teams overrun. If you come with someone trusted, pray with each other. And it's just being in that humbleness. So I'm seeing in certain churches where God is moving that I'm seeing this. It's not, you know, that you don't have to be the superstar. Again, the, the, the big outpouring we've seen at Asbury came from someone who said that was not a good sermon and I didn't prepare. I don't know what on earth God just did. Yeah. I think that's the answer to that. Longer than a minute, but yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Now that you've answered the AI, future of AI and... <laughs> The future of the Sunday gathering, uh, <laughs> Tom. Actually, that I was going to ask a question actually about um, what you thought the future of the structure of the church would look like, but I'll ask a different question. Right now, in in our context, you know, we're in um, Tom and I are in Southern California. Um, Eugene is in NorCal, and I think um, the big question, um, I guess, that's obviously you have these issues that come up, like Israel Palestine, um, but I think. Right now, if 2020, the big kind of undertone was racial justice, right now, I think it's a lot of questions. We're getting a lot of questions around gender and sexuality. And I'm curious if you, um, because just because I'm not as familiar with kind of the movement of the church in Europe and and or Australia, how how have you seen that conversation play out? Um, You know, and Maybe you can speak a little bit to how churches have responded to it, um, what you've what you've seen. Because I know um, Europe is, I, I think Europe is a little bit ahead of us um, on that. But I'm I'm not even sure if that's that's true. But yeah, could you speak to that a little bit? Uh, so just to, just to clarify, when you say Europe is ahead, you mean is in the church or the culture? Oh, the the culture. You know the weirdest thing I've seen is. I remember my first time I went to Denmark. Uh, this is going to be longer than a minute. I'll try and keep it short. Um, All good. Uh, <laughs> when I first went to Denmark, I was like, what a super progressive country. You know, America seemed the more conservative country. Mm-hmm. Uh, last time I went to Denmark, it seemed conservative compared to America. Wow. Uh, and look, I'm mainly someone who visits the coasts and the, the hipster cities. Um, 
But America has radically gone forward at a pace where a lot of Europeans would see what's happening in California schools, et cetera, et cetera, as um, like beyond. This is partially why I think there's a backlash happening in Europe and, and, and a massive swing to conservatism uh, that is occurring. Um, in my state, which is probably a bit more like California, you know, it's definitely a conversation. Um, I have a sense that there is a backlash and it's not just a sense. In conversations to younger people, there's a backlash coming from Gen Z, Gen Z. Um, in Australia, I'm looking, talking to 25 year old, like under 25s here. We emerged from the pandemic. And the thing I noticed here is that every Australian guy had a mullet and a, and a moustache and they're all walking around talking. And so I was in, I was in Sydney recently and, and, you know, I saw some kids who were sort of in that space and, you know, experimenting with gender fluidity at, at, at the museum. And I sort of noticed them. I thought, oh, you know, I was thinking about that's the generation. And then I just thought, hang on, Mark, you've just walked past probably 20,000 other Gen Zs who you got, you got your guy, your buff guy, you've got your girlfriend there. They're talking like this. And there is actually, I think, this backlash that could surprise us that's coming around this stuff. Mm-hmm. And we're missing it because it's so normal. And you're looking at exceptions, not, not the mainstream. And I'm hearing kids who are not Christians going, we're done with it. Like, like, uh, is it everyone? No. And, and yeah, so I think it's going to be an interesting thing. Hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm just fascinated around that as, as to what could occur. And if, are we missing something there? Hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, one thing that's interesting about Europe as well, just, just on this is that one thing that could, if you look at Poland and Hungary and these places, what you've seen is a return of a kind of cultural Christianity that's come after communism after postmodern liberalism, it's a return to cultural Christianity. Same in Russia, I would say. Yeah. And that's one thing people are not expecting that could come. Mm, interesting. Um, and even some of the Christian national stuff in America, is it you know, a lot of the research coming out is not necessarily churchgoers. It's, so there's this sense of, I'm not going to go to mass in Poland, but we're a Christian nation yeah. and we don't like this stuff. Yeah. I guess one last question just to wrap things up. You wrote a book called Disappearing Church, and then three years later, you wrote a book called Reappearing Church. If you were to write another book with the name Church in it, what would you call that book, given the current oh, man. right now? Oh, man. I mean, I'm writing a book called Platforms to Pillars. Um, I, it doesn't I, well, have to be clean. Just, it could be as sloppy as you want, but just to capture yeah. the current moment of church, how would you? what title would it be? Well, I think, I think to be honest, I think to be honest, the fact that I'm not writing a book with the name church in it is probably my answer <laughs> in the sense of, you know, like reappearing church was neither of those titles. I actually, I came up with reappearing church because I, I didn't come up with disappearing church and I wanted to sort of reappearing church. The actual original title of disappearing church was called a beautiful apocalypse. Um, and, <laughs> um, uh, my sense in that was that there was this like culture was getting lost in this there was that 30-year world you know it's this beautiful world everything's ascetic and the world's going to be wonderful the church is going to you know almost disappear in the midst of it there's like an apocalypse and there's a playoff apocalypse is revealing um yeah i i again as i said i'm, I'm not focused on here's the mode of church people mm. you know I, I don't care you know I, I care about god in the presence of god um you know i care about what i what what is what I think about of the last years, the moment I subscribe when the Holy Spirit fell in that service, other moments that happened. I think about when we prayed 
all weekend as a church, day and night, 24 hours. And then the Sunday after we got to communion and it just turned into a response. We didn't even have a sermon. People were just praying. You know, I think about the moments when I was dealing with the news of Truly and I was up and looking after the kids and crying, but just feeling this presence of God. And, you know, that that's what that's what I'm centered around now. I want people to feel that. Yeah. I think that's what cuts through. I want people to encounter God. So I wouldn't write a book with church. Well, who knows? You never know. But yeah. Well, Mark, you solved AI and uh, a lot of issues in the last couple minutes. Um, so thankful for your expertise. But no, honestly, it's always a treat to have you on. Um, we, we truly learn a lot from you from afar and have the privilege of even learning from you, um, you know, not up close, but at least in the same Zoom room. So in 2023, that's 2024 is the same building essentially so thank you so much for coming on i'm always blessed mm. from your ministry from afar and from your presence and what you've given to the church oh, my pleasure i think my parting if i could give a passing encouragement to the listeners and i know i think it's real what you guys mentioned that there there be people who may roll their eyes i just want to challenge you with a subversive question what if there's more and what if in the midst of disappointment he wants to bless you with more and and what if he actually wants to meet you in your pain and through that meeting point you'll encounter his presence and that will overflow to other people and and what if this is the journey out of striving to abiding and i i just am profoundly hopeful that he he wants to do something in many of the people's who are many people who are listening today so i will be praying for you all thank, thank you so, so much, much mark thank you mark Pleasure.